Over the last year, the world has woken up to a reality that many of us have known for some time, that certain segments of the population are left out of or underserved by our healthcare system. Within weeks of the pandemic start, the toll on Black and Brown Americans became national news. It was soon followed by cries for them to be included in vaccine trials. While this effort was largely successful, the effects of the pandemic, the summer protest, and subsequent discussions about moving forward forced a larger discussion about diversity in developing all types of medical treatments. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. Today, we explore what's being done to address the issue of diversity, or lack thereof, in clinical trials. We talked with a physician who grapples with the impacts of inequity every day, a biotech company with real-world solutions, and the FDA about the government's role in guiding the industry. I'm an infectious disease physician and a medical epidemiologist. I focus mostly on uh, patient outreach and engagement to improve health literacy. And most of my work is with underserved populations, um, Black and brown communities, uh, often folks who are on Medicaid or uninsured, uh, homeless populations. Over my career, I've, I've referred people into clinical trials, but the first time I participated in a clinical trial was during the pandemic. I participated in the Moderna trial, and the reason I did that is because people on the street or in the community were telling me they didn't trust the vaccines or the process. And one of the, the ways they could be convinced is if they saw Black people participating in the process. Dr. Lisa recognized that problem and began to take it to the streets, quite literally with her show, Dr. Lisa on the Street. The show aims to start open dialogue to educate people and close the misinformation gap to increase trust between communities and health professionals. Here's a short clip from a pandemic-centered episode. They don't have a plan. I'm going to let you know that. Who doesn't have a plan? The FDA. Oh, they, okay. don't have a, they don't have a, a serious curriculum plan, for real. Do you want to get the vaccine? At no time. I'm good. Why not? Why should I get something down? I don't know the side effects. I might die in 30 days or 40 so days. So tell me, what, what questions do you have about the vaccine? Ask me. What's the side effects? What do it does? Who, who took it and they still alive? So me. You took it? I took it before we even knew if it worked. I was in the study. So you was a crash dummy and you took that test. <laughs> I did. And then when you die, then what? People often ask me if underserved communities are unable, unaware, or uninterested in participating in clinical trials. But I think the truth is we have not made clinical trials accessible to these populations. Uh, number one, I think there's a lot of judgment and paternalism in the healthcare system. We make decisions about who we think are optimal candidates for participation in research trials, or we make judgments about whether or not we think people can follow through and actually never give them the opportunity to say yes or no, or ask for support to be in a clinical trial. 
I think the other challenge is a lot of people in underserved communities are relying on healthcare providers who work within the community uh, health center setting or in federally qualified health centers. And these traditionally are not places where you see clinical trial enrollment. Most of the time, or in my experience, uh, patients I've enrolled in clinical trials have come through my affiliations with an academic center. And that's where the lion's share of clinical trial participation happens. Dr. Lisa's point about where clinical trials are happening versus where people of color are receiving treatment came up in the conversation I had with Garen Wilson. I am currently the head of inclusion strategy and partnerships within the chief diversity office at Genentech. And within this capacity, I lead the design and activation of Genentech's diversity and inclusion strategy and really try to harness the power of our increasingly diverse world uh, surrounding and within healthcare to help our organization deliver better science, better medicine, and, and ultimately deliver better outcomes for patients. As we dove into a conversation about access, I shared a personal anecdote. I remember when my my father was was ill in in one of the Texas Medical Center hospitals in Houston, and he was in this gleaming, beautiful hospital that had a baby grand piano in the lobby and marble floors. And every time I would go and visit him, I would sometimes go down into the tunnels to get food from one of the other connected five hospitals. And I'd come up in one of the hospitals and it would be 90% black. And I'd come up in the gleaming baby grand piano hospital and I would rarely see a person of color. And that's just a few blocks away from each other. And so I often hear, well, our academic medical centers aren't located where patients of color can reach them. But is it that or is it really they're not welcoming those patients in the door? And if so, what can companies like Genentech do in your reengineering of your research to touch that issue as well? Yeah, that's a great illustration of of the care environments that you know, our patients find themselves in, both in the academic medical hospital and maybe in the community-based med- uh, medical center. So I think that, you know, as a, as a sponsor for research, we can do both things well. We can communicate with our academic medical centers, those that have historically been our close collaborators in the research setting, and let them know that inclusive research is important to us and that we expect that they will recruit a population, a a demographic into the studies that they participate in that truly reflects the demographics of the disease that we are answering a scientific question within. And I think if we do that, along with a host of other interventions that we can make, we will put ourselves on a path to see more representation in clinical research, you know, more patients that truly experience disease finding themselves in the research environment, benefiting from the high degree, high level of clinical care that takes place within that that environment, and and ideally experiencing better outcomes uh, as a result of that participation. That's, That's our aspiration. When we come back from a quick break, we will talk more about communities. This episode is brought to you by the Clinical Trial Diversity Summit, 
Bio's first conference on building a sustainable and equitable clinical development ecosystem to be held June 24th and 25th. Find out more at bio.org events. Because clinical trials provide a crucial base of evidence for evaluating whether a medical product is safe and effective, enrollment in trials should reflect the diversity of the population that is ultimately going to use the product. This is Dr. Richarde Arojo. I serve as the Associate Commissioner for Minority Health and Director of the Office of Minority Health and Health Equity and the Office of the Commissioner at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. In this role, I provide leadership, oversight, and direction on minority health, health disparity, and health equity matters for the agency. We asked her, when we talked about increasing diversity in clinical trials, who exactly are you talking about? We consider both demographic characteristics such as race, ethnicity, sex, age, geographic location, and non-demographic characteristics of populations, such as patients with organ dysfunction, comorbid conditions, disabilities, those at the extremes of the weight range, and populations with diseases or conditions with low prevalence. So if all of these populations are so critical to include in clinical trials, why have large swaths of them historically been absent? One barrier to participation that we all know well is a lack of trust because of past historical abuses. Other barriers to participation may differ based on the population you're seeking to enroll and may include language and cultural differences, health literacy, religion, and a lack of awareness and knowledge about what a clinical trial is and what it means to participate. Some barriers may be due to aspects of trial design, such as inadequate recruitment and retention efforts, accessibility to the site location, frequency of study visits, time and resource constraints for patients, transportation. Participation may also conflict with caregiver or family responsibilities and may cause time away from jobs and other commitments. Oftentimes, there is simply a perception that minorities do not want to participate and they aren't asked. Trust and community came up in all of the conversations we had. Lisa did an entire series on her experience in the trial. As with double-blind trials, she did not know if she was in the group that was given the vaccine or on the placebo control group until the end. I created several videos throughout the process. I created a video explaining why I joined the trial. I brought the the viewer into a couple of my clinic visits so they could see what was actually happening during a clinical trial visit. I created a video documenting uh, my consent form process, helping them understand this is one of the differences between research now and during the 1940s and 50s when the Tuskegee experiment happened was that I could consent to being in the study and I could also decide I didn't want to participate. They unblinded me in the trial and guess what? Here's my vaccine passport. I got the vaccine. Let's talk about the symptoms I had. Maybe on on another live, but let me know if you have questions. And I'm so relieved. But in the meantime, I'll put my mask back on. Garen says that what Dr. Lisa is doing is exactly what more representatives in the medical industry need to be doing. I I view my current role as part engineer, kind of design thinker within the organization that I represent and, you know, an ambassador within uh, the biotechnology universe writ large. 
but I also find myself as uh, someone who is trying to, yes, inspire a different kind of conversation uh, within communities of color as it relates to our health, our well-being, and the promise of a future where we are closing healthcare disparities and truly uh, unlocking healthy lifestyles and uh, able to to cure some of these serious illnesses that impact our community so much. And, and part of that charge, I believe, is going to different environments and talking, start first talking with my own family. I have a big family in St. Louis and trying to talk to them about exactly what you're seeing, what I'm observing within my own company, the scale of innovation, the brilliance of my colleagues, our current investment in personalized healthcare, and both this integration of big data, technology, machine learning, and combining that with all of the expertise we've built up in drug development and in diagnostics to truly deliver a powerful vision of personalized healthcare going forward, helping doctors make smarter decisions for patients, helping us cure diseases faster. And I'm seeing all of this and I'm trying to operate as a translator into certain communities to let them know like the future is bright. I come from the African-American community. And so that's something that I feel like it's, it's a personal commitment that I have to make to my own community to just constantly be a voice for change so that we are having a different kind of conversations with our parents, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, cousins, and the like. Uh, answering questions, being patient. I, I want that for all other communities that I hold dear, the Latino community, the Asian Pacific Islander community, the white community, all of these communities have health issues. Some are participating in the research environment that is going to be the information that is used to design the future of healthcare more than others. And so they stand to benefit more than others as that innovation starts to roll out. And so I think what, what I'm really focused on is ensuring that those that maybe not have been as present now become more present so that we can all realize what's to come. Genentech is a 45-year-old multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company that has developed life-changing treatments across hormones, cancer, and even the common flu. Why are they invested in diversity within the company's structure and in clinical trials? Well, I think it's fundamental for our sustainability in healthcare for organizations like Genentech and others to be directly focused on unlocking the power of diversity and inclusion to deliver more innovation. As a biotechnology company and a medicine, a manufacturer of, of medicine, we realize that the face of disease is changing. You know, if you just look at the next 30-year time horizon, by 2030, new cancer cases will increase by over 80% low-income low countries. By 2040, over half of the patients living with Alzheimer's in the U.S. will be Black or Hispanic. Take that out another five years. U.S. cases of breast cancer are projected to increase by 72% in Black patients, 98% in Latino patients, over 120% in patients of Asian and Pacific Islander ancestry. And then if we think about, you know, 2050, I'm at the, uh, the midpoint of the century, Alzheimer cases in China are expected to quadruple and, count and account for over half of the cases worldwide. Mm. So... You know, this work is fundamental to who we are as an organization. And if we're not paying attention to those patients now, we won't be in a position to provide them value and provide benefit in the future. So it's, it's fundamental to who we are as an organization and what we aspire to 
to provide to patients. Companies like Genentech recognize the importance of clinical trial diversity. Government agencies like the FDA recognize it, and experts interacting with patients every day like Dr. Lisa recognize it too. So what are they all doing about it? The Office of Minority Health and Health Equity created the Diversity in Clinical Trials Initiative, which includes an ongoing public education and outreach campaign to help address some of the barriers preventing diverse groups from participating in clinical trials through a variety of culturally and linguistically tailored strategies, tools, and resources. And these include educational materials in multiple languages, a dedicated webpage with public service announcements and videos, social media outreach, and ongoing stakeholder engagement, collaborations, and partnerships. All of these resources can be found at our website at www.fda.gov forward slash health equity. FDA has developed policy strategies to support diverse participation through the issuance of guidance documents, such as the collection of race and ethnicity data and clinical trials guidance, which published in 2016, the 2017 guidance on evaluation and reporting of age, race, and ethnicity-specific data in medical device clinical studies, and of course, the November 2020 Enhancing the Diversity of Clinical Trial Populations, Eligibility Criteria, Enrollment Practices, and Trial Designs Guidance for Industry. All of these efforts support diverse participation in clinical trials and ultimately diversity in the data that is submitted to FDA. Garen talks about what Genentech has done and what other companies can learn from. I would say first, it is you have to have experts providing insight that your company is willing to take action on. So one of the first things we did, and I just alluded to it in a previous question, was we established an external council, an advisory body that would provide us recommendations for changes that we could make. We established that advisory group to both give us the insight and then also hold us accountable for driving change. I think it's important to look at, you know, the the, the blueprint that sets the path for research. So the clinical development protocol that just outlines the disease area that that's in focus, you know, talks about the scientific questions that exist within that disease area and kind of outline how clinical research would be done in a certain disease area and evaluate those protocols for biases. I think what we found in our organization is that, you know, our inclusion or our clinical trial protocol and elements within it, mainly like our inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, for a lot of our clinical studies were things that have been templatized almost. They had been kind of, you know, we had gotten a certain, you know, standard patient, healthy patient model uh, identified within those protocols. And that became something that were, was adopted across multiple protocols in a particular disease area. And we realized that things like serum creatinine clearance, um, as an example, there are lab specific normals by population. So as a, as a black man or as a black person, we have maybe a higher density of muscle. So our serum creatinine clearance levels would be higher than, than maybe, say, another population. But our protocols would oftentimes be benchmarked to a patient of European ancestry. So there was creating some, some uh, limitations in who could participate or who was excluded from research based on that normal patient model that was embedded in the templates of our clinical trial protocol. So I would say evaluate clinical trial protocol for biases. That's one of the, some of the scientific clinical science parameters. And then there's a whole host of operational changes that can be made. 
Uh, and I think we, in so doing, I think organizations can become more patient centric when assessing their clinical operations for for new uh, for to create more access and opportunity for for all patients. I would say that you know removing financial barriers is a key area of focus for our organization. We have a zero cost to patient initiative, which is really looking at some of the ancillary costs that are associated with research, more frequent doctors' visits, which require you know transportation costs, childcare costs, things along those lines. Uh, how can we remove some of those costs for patients to remove the the financial burden associated with research participation? That's been shown to really help patients afford and to be in that environment for an extended period of time. And then we have also ensured that we elevate the level of accountability for both our contract research organizations and our clinical trial sites by embedding new language within our contracts to communicate our priority around inclusive research and our expectation that our partners in this environment would also share that type of priority in the work that they do in collaboration with us. So those have been, you know, some of the clinical science strategies that have been effective, some of the operational strategies that have been effective. Beyond that, I think it's it's been really important for us to get out and, and immerse ourselves in the community, uh, invest in, in environments where we can bring stakeholders together to talk about the challenges in health equity at large or talk about challenges in, uh, you know, advancing inclusive research and clinical trial diversity. And as for Dr. Lisa, she's still taking her education on the road. Hi, it's Dr. Lisa with Dr. Lisa on the Street. And today we're talking about dancing because dancing is a form of exercise and it's free. So you don't have to go to the gym, pay gym fees and exercise five days a week for an hour at a time. You can dance even if you don't like to dance in public. Turn on your favorite tune and just start moving. So let's see if we can get people to dance. Thank you so much to all of today's guests. This is a layered and multifaceted conversation, and we didn't get to everything. On the next episode, we will speak to experts about what is behind all the chatter surrounding IP and whether it truly stands in between patients and the vaccine. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and or review. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at I Am Biotech. And subscribe to Good Day Bio at bio.org slash goodday. This episode was developed by executive producer Teresa Brady and producers Connor McCoy, Cornelia Poku, and Marilyn Sawyer. It was engineered and mixed by Jess Fenton. Theme music created by Luke Smith and Sam Brady. <laughs>